Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson and I'm in conversation with Michael Peel. Michael Peel is the European Diplomatic Correspondent based in Brussels for the Financial Times. He is also a reporter for the FT from Southeast Asia, the Middle East and West Africa. His new book is called The Fabulous, The World's New Rulers, Their Myths and the Struggle Against Them. So, Michael... Let's set out your stall. You talk about the modern age of fabulism. What is the modern age of fabulism? Well, Paul, this this book is the product, um, as, as you indicated in the intro, of, of years of reporting experience in different places, which are, of course, uh, contrasted uh, geographically, culturally, linguistically, um, and yet in in many of them, many years of travelling in the, the the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Europe, and elsewhere, I began to notice certain patterns in terms of how leaders and political movements, demagogues and authoritarians um, sell themselves and the kind of narratives that they spin, the stories that they tell to get support. And, And so this is a book really about importance of interrogating those stories and it's an account of how these political figures in what an age of distraction as it's often dubbed these days with, right. with so many events so much digital information how they've thrived in in that age um, and and to, to, to in ways that are very uh, worrying um, and it I really highlight that but at the same time it's not a kind of manifesto of despair because I also meet a lot of people who are resisting and uh, questioning these stories as well so it's also a book about them well let's avoid the spoiler alert to the beginning um, you talk a lot about um, what you call national myth making and you say in some respects it is quite distinctive to each particular regime but also some ways archetypal so let's talk about the archetypal stuff what are the kind of common traits you can find uh, such as they are amongst all these different kinds of fabulous so a, a few examples. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, you have uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who was sold as this great uh, young reformer when, yeah. when he came to power. And um, you, you, But you see how that, um, that story that, while it's not totally false in one sense, in that you know, there have been changes in, in terms of um, the, the, the relaxation of, uh, to some extent at least, of rules um, on, on women driving, on social events that could be held and so forth. But there's also, as we've seen, a very dark side. Um, and that has been most obvious, of course, in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the aftermath of, of that. And um, it's really a, a, a story of how you know, the idea of the, the benevolent, all-powerful autocrat, um, we should know better than to just buy into this as, as uncritically as, as some people did. Another example is President Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines. Um, I, I was based in Bangkok at the time that he, he came to office in, uh, in 2016, and um, he's really interesting to study um, in some ways as a kind of forerunner to Trumpism in the US. He was elected um, about six months before, um, and um, he, he's really... Um, uh, and and uh, a, a guy who has is democratically elected, but obviously has very authoritarian, autocratic tendencies, and he has um, worked on weaknesses within institutions in the Philippines, which has been democratic since the fall of the Marcos regime in the late 1980s, and has launched this incredibly bloody drugs war in which thousands of people have died and and, and done various other things. And and the point is to say that um, this is not what Trump's America is, um, but it's what um, leaders who have these authoritarian instincts 
can do when there aren't checks and balances on them and Duterte has really been able to exploit that in a way that has has, has shocked some people in the Philippines and he's incredibly popular he sold himself right. as I am the national saviour right. um, now there are good reasons to say that he's not and there are critics who say that he's not and of course I, I meet many of them in this book but it's a seductive narrative and people have, have bought into it even though it has very obvious flaws. Well is this seductive narrative part of the kind of the kind of key recipe that autocratic leaders in broad terms uh, adopt in order to get elected because presumably if they were seen to be on the campaign trail as bloodthirsty and very authoritarian they may not be quite as likely to garner votes as, as if they appear as uh, user-friendly and likable. So to what extent do they, when, at least when they're campaigning, electioneering, they try and modify and, and calibrate their, their, their aura, their persona? Well, that, that's one of the very interesting things that, that um, of course, um, we, we've seen with, with Donald Trump is that um, he kind of bucked the received wisdom that you right. know, handed down over decades in Western politics that there are certain scandals, whether they're sexual or financial or whatever, that a candidate could never survive. Right. Well, guess what? He did. Yeah. Um, and, and he was elected. And again, Duterte is a great example to study for that. Duterte, he didn't come in and say, you know, I'm going to empower the police force, but, you know, <laughs> within the rule right. of law. You know, he said stuff like, I'm going to um, take the bodies of de dead drug dealers and feed them to the fishes in Manila Bay. Yeah. He was quite clear about what he was doing, and he got people to, to vote for him on, on that basis. So, you know, it's a kind of insight into this frightening tendency that we see that um, people will, even if it's all out there, even if the ugly side of these leaders is, is fully on display, people will still buy into it in, in significant numbers. Well, I can imagine there's a kind of maybe a balance to be struck, and in, certainly in the eyes of a voter, that on the one hand, a, a leader, a potential leader could be authoritarian and say, I'm going to around up all these, these uh, drug dealers and I'm going to you know, eliminate corruption in public institutions, that, that's a, a quote-unquote a good thing. But on the other hand, if then once I'm in power and once I've done all these things that people want me to do and on the back of which I got elected, I'm also going to basically impose a police state with no freedom of speech and lock up people for no good reason. That's, that's the problem, isn't it, as well? You, you put your finger on something really interesting there, Paul, which is that there is a kind of double think in all of this. And I had many conversations in the Philippines uh, like this where people... Um, they expressed enthusiasm for Duterte, but they also, they're not stupid. I mean, you then follow up, and these were some of the most kind of productive and enlightening conversations I had, where I say to people, um, you know, well, okay, you, you support him, but he, he's really empowering the police force to kill arbitrarily and yeah. you know the police are, you know they have a reputation for corruption don't they and people will say yeah we know that that does worry us a bit but you know the, the higher cause is getting rid of drugs because Duterte had presented it, it as this kind of existential problem and surveys showed that on the one hand people had enormous approval for Duterte but on the other hand they thought in large numbers they feared that they or their families or friends could be caught up in the drug war so they you know there's, there's something a little bit more complex going on right. beneath the surface there and I remember one, one guy I speak to and I, I mentioned in the book who you know was very pro Duterte and then I got talking to him and it turned out that he'd, he'd been a drug addict 
and he changed his life and turned it around right. and seen the possibility of rehabilitation and we you know he and I explored this idea and and you know by the end of the conversation we were having a totally different kind of chat which had gone from the kind of hard line we've got to get rid of drugs and take by any means necessary to by at the end he was talking about his love for his daughter and how his life had turned around and how he did recognize that it was possible for people to change so you know there's there's a lot going on beneath the surface that isn't necessarily captured in the, the headline news well let's maybe go Current, uh, more the, the more kind of subtle versions of maybe uh, of populism stroke fabulism. You say autocrats have always spun stories to reinforce their, their power, but this is now spread to supposed Democrats. I mean, where is it? Because that is that because Democrats have seen the success of more you know hard nosed or autocratic authoritarian regimes, or is that a mere coincidence? I, I think that there is an element of um, in which uh, these movements and, and 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 their leaders do do learn from from other places and, what, and what's happened. And um, you know, to some extent, we see that in in Europe. That you know, um, for example, Viktor Orbán in in Hungary has um, led um, a certain movement which which he himself has described as illiberal democracy. And yeah. the, you know that the, you see movements like that to 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 to, to greater or lesser extent springing up in other countries um, um, as, as well and uh, you know in Southeast Asia the the, the, the 50 year you know again 10,000 kilometers away but the, yeah. uh, the Thai military has clearly adopted lessons from the long military rule in Myanmar um, and military rule in Indonesia in terms of how it hangs on into power in Thailand so you can see people learning from examples around them that's for sure. Well it seems like a symbiotic relationship because you say on the one hand therefore autocrats so you know whoever maybe informed should we say people like Orban uh, in, in so-called well, liberal democracies if not real democracies then you also say that the, the dishonest and double standards of democratic countries have powered the rise of autocratic autocratic myth makers elsewhere. So it's almost like it's a two way process, isn't it? One feeds the other, and then the, the other feeds the first one. Yes, and 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 I think that you know to bring the conversation back to to, to Europe, yeah. um, there 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 are a couple of you know big examples which I I, I, I try to bring out in the book in, in in two separate chapters. One is the way I uh, use the example of Aung San Suu Kyi in Myanmar as a leader who was venerated in in in, in time, the West yeah. For, yeah. For, for a long time for many years and not you know not without good reasons yeah. I mean, there's real bravery there's real suffering in her story and it's very Sacrifice, important yeah. and, and, and it's very important to, to stress that but of course we all know what's happened since she's been um um, she, she's been condemned um, for her, the way in which she has not spoken out and in some ways um, even seemed to uh, offer approval for the, the, the deadly crackdown on the, uh, the Myanmar army on, yeah. the, on Rohingya Muslims in the west of the, the, the country. Um, and, and, you know, and the outrage is, is perfectly right in one way, but what I try to do is take that a step further and say, well, you know, just as she was not a paragon, it, now you can't just say this is about the devilry of Aung San Suu Kyi and that um, outside countries, including Western countries, bear responsibility for this because of the way that they promoted and handled a transition in mm -hmm. Myanmar um, in which the military maintained great 
power um, and that something like this was always going to happen. They also invested so much in Su Chi personally, even though it was quite obvious that you know she have, uh, she was um, uh, a, a kind of nationalist for the the majority Bama ethnic group from which she's from. Her father, her late father, who's you know who's a great inspiration for her, is a murdered Bama nationalist hero. So um, all of all of this sort of led rather inevitably to this point and I think the outsiders who are now saying they're so shocked by what's happened need to take a look at you know whether they their analysis and whether the way that they promoted the transition and Suchi personally was was correct and then there's a broader point which I go into about a chapter about European values yeah. in which um, this is something that's obviously um, especially in this town in Brussels it is proclaimed often that there are certain European values about you know, democracy and human rights and the rest and of the world. yes and, and 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 this is very problematic in, 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 in some ways and you know partly because historically that is not the historical record of yeah. many big European countries um, in, in the ages of, 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 of slavery and, and empire and colonialism um, but now now um, there's this question of which I pose in the book of you know is is Europe rotting from within? Um, you know we see um, problems um, with the rule of law spreading around the block. Obviously Poland and Hungary have got a lot of attention, yeah. and they're the ones that have been pursued at an EU level. But it's not just that. It's for example um, I, 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 I look at the case of Daphne Caruana Galizia, the, the murdered journalist in in Malta. That that was one of my my first big assignments when I came back to Europe was, you know, the murder of a journalist in an EU state with the suspicion of, of, of political motivation. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's pretty shocking. And, it, it, you know, on one hand, um, Malta has been a kind of poster child for the EU in terms of some of the kind of socially progressive law reforms it's, it's made. Mm-hmm. Um, but here we are with uh, two years on um, with uh, a, a murder which, um, for which nobody has, has yet been brought to trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, although some people have been arrested, they seem to be the low-level operatives, and it still hasn't been explained, you know, why this happened, and the, and the, the main people behind this have, have not been brought to justice. And meanwhile, there's, you know, problems with corruption in Malta, which the government denies, but you know, there are many people, including the Council of Europe, who yeah. pointed to these, which which have not been addressed. And then, you know, to finally kind of expand that one level further, that. Western European countries or, or more you know, longer standing EU member states who dish out a lot of the lectures on this well if you're looking at questions of conflicts of interest and political corruption what was one of the first big cases? Silvio Berlusconi in Italy yeah, right. um, it's not like this started with Malta or Hungary or Poland um, and you know, I think that EU countries including the very biggest and most influential need to take a long hard look at themselves. Well, at the most basic simple level is this pure therefore unalloyed um, hypocrisy of the European Union amongst its member states, because uh, they project and claim to be very, you know, uh, holier than thou, should we say, sanctimonious almost about values, and yet at the same time, as you say, internally there are all these issues, or is it because they are fully aware of these, the things they, that you've been talking about just now, but they don't really know how to, to handle them, you know, Timmermans, in his current job, not his new job, has been trying very hard, as you know, as Vice President of the Commission, to, to take certain countries to task, so far without conspicuous success. So is there, a, is there any way around that to, to solve that, to, to, to address these issues? Yes, I, th- I think that works on two levels. I mean, I'm not, of course 
discrediting the ideas behind them. You know, they are worthy ideas often. Um, But I think a there needs to be a little more humility, especially in the projection of the EU to the outside world. Humility linked to the history of Europe and also to its own shortcomings and I think having worked in a lot of countries outside Europe that would help a lot I mean to to me I mean you know we know in life it's quite disarming if someone comes to you and they they don't lecture you but they say look here are some ideas I don't pretend that I've got it right or anything like this but you know here's something you 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 know here are my my ideas I want to hear your ideas and, and let's talk well that's a much more compelling um, uh, proposition isn't it than than someone coming to dish out lectures so there's that side of it and then there's the the internal governance side of it and as you say it's become quite clear that the the current EU structure of um, based around uh, Article Seven um, yeah. as, as the ultimate sort of sanction, which the process, which um, the disciplinary process, in which Poland and Hungary are both in now, um, with the possibility of harsh sanctions, including the suspension of EU voting rights, but it it just doesn't really work as a tool because um, it requires unanimity. So as long as you have a situation where Hungary and Poland have both said, "Well, we'll we'll support each other and we'll have each other's backs," then then you can't actually do anything um, and then of course there's a there's a, another problem which is um, the allegations from countries who are targeted that there are double standards being applied here yeah. Um, yeah. and that you know perhaps longer standing EU member states western EU member states are not being being um, uh, having their shortcomings looked at in the same way now that's partly what about it's partly yeah. um, you know political convenience to make those arguments but no, it's not totally bogus either and I think any kind of um, system and the Clearly, there are moves towards this. Um, Didier Reinders, the, the, who will probably have responsibility for rule of law in the European Commission, has, has talked about this, among others, that there must be some system of broader peer review right. so that everybody looks at everyone else and says, well, on this checklist, this is where we think there are concerns. And, you know, that, that has two effects. It means that there's full coverage, and so shortcomings in, quotes, good member states are also picked up and addressed Um, and also it diffuses the argument about double standards if everyone's looking at everyone else then there can be no complaint that anybody's being singled out well, you, you hinted at the beginning that maybe it's not all dark and dark. Most of this podcast has been pretty gloomy, I must admit. You hinted at the beginning that there were maybe some some grounds for optimism. And so to finish off this chat, Michael, I want to talk to you a bit about um, what you call the shortage of truth. You say what is alarming now is not so much a shortage of truth, but the abandon, abandonment of the quest for it, especially by so many of our leaders. So. Do you see any, well, first of all, what makes you say that? And, and secondly, are there any signs that they are starting to, to pursue real truths, as it were? Yeah, I, I think what I'm trying to get at there is that um, on a subject like um, climate change, where you have certain leaders and certain movements um, who, who, who just political movements who, who don't say, okay, there's clearly a problem here, but we disagree on how to address it, let's talk about it. They just deny, they just yeah. dismiss the very idea. Um, and, um, you know, in, in, or in, in, in another sphere, the sort of gross inequalities we have in, in societies, including in, in, in Europe, people who, you know, will not, get to the root of that are still sort of um, uh, still sort of wedded to the old ideas of you know how 
fairly unrestrained capitalism can work. Well, that idea has been pretty comprehensively discredited over the last 10 years, but yeah, still yeah, it's been yeah. a long wake-up process. So, so that's what I'm trying to get at. But as, as, I, as, I, um, as, as I said at the start, it, and I'm glad you asked this question, thank you for doing so, but it's, it, this book is not meant to be a council of, of despair. And all the way through, there are people who um, you know, are uh, resisting um, and in some cases, you know, in the most authoritarian regimes, you know, they are um, uh, risking their liberty or, or even their lives. Yeah. Um, and I speak to a jailed senator in the, in the Philippines, um, yeah. for example, um, who you know is accused of being involved in the drugs trade, but it, it, human rights groups have said that it, it's, it's politically motivated because she's a long-standing opponent of Duterte. And figures like that, who you know, they t- they're taking the long view. They're saying, well, you know, this this will not last forever, and that um, if you chip away at some of these wholly false or questionable ideas over time, they still they will start to, to collapse in on themselves, you right. know, and there, and there is a kind of resistance, and sometimes it takes a horrible event, but, you know, Saudi Arabia, the narrative has yeah. changed about yeah. Mohammed bin Salman in, in Myanmar, the narrative about Aung San Suu Kyi has changed, and if you look in the US, I mean, you know, the, the impeachment inquiry into into Donald Trump, and Trump he, he's not having everything his own way, that, yeah. um, you know, in, in all of these cases we're seeing sort of pushbacks um, and, yes, you know, so, some of this is ideological, some of this is a, about, you know, political cut and thrust but there are also people who do have a sort of genuinely more idealistic commitment to you know how society should work and the basic level of you know of 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 of, of honesty and truthfulness we we need to have in our interactions with each other not just on a personal ethical level but if we are to solve the great you know problems of our time whether they're financial environmental or whatever for all of our sakes well one final quick question then to to wrap it all up michael you say in the past decade myth busting has never been more urgent we spend a lot of time in this podcast talking about leaders and, and regimes at the, the, at the elite level should we say uh, but it's obviously a shared responsibility with, with electorates and populations that you say in the book you know there's so much information out there but never has it been more difficult to maybe to absorb all this information or sift through it and find out you know where things stand but do you see uh, signs of optimism that real voters are they showing signs of being more aware of, uh, uh, of how regimes are being uh, conducted well, I, I think I'm I'm generally very um, optimistic about about people in that um, you know my much of my career I've, I've spent in, in various places around the world where um, and I think this is one of the very interesting things about working for a newspaper like the FT. I mean, clearly yeah, yeah. you know there are a lot of quote elite level interactions with, minister, with you know, top ministers and chief executives and others, but you know I've been fortunate to work in a variety of places where I've done a lot of reporting um, about you know people who are uh, caught up in some events, um, political events, or um, uh, who, um, you know, are not of the elite, but, you know, tell us something about, you know, the, the, the heartbeat of a country, if, mm. if you like, and, right. and the movement in a country. And, and I've always taken the view that, you know, if you, if you sit down with most people, um, even people with whom you, you might sort of disagree with on quite a lot, you can have a productive conversation and you can spark ideas off each other. And, you know, I've certainly found that my thinking on all kinds of questions changed by conversations with people and um, you know just to finish off perhaps with with um, with, with, with 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 a situation which is roiling Britain with, with brexit um, which obviously feels very very personal and it's my own country and and I have a chapter on that in which I 
go and talk to Brexit supporters, including the headmaster of my old primary school, yeah. who's a friend of my mother. And I wanted to do that because there's a bit of a personal connection right. there. And we have a long conversation, which I recount in the book. And, and I use that to say, well, you know, the, the, this sort of remain leave binary which we have now is is so false in many ways because yes it's a very important argument whether or not we should be in the EU but actually people on both sides would share certain basic ideas about what civilised life in Britain is and what are the kind yeah. of public goods we need to promote and I think that the, the, the sort of tragedy of what's happening with Brexit is it could undermine many of those kind of shared values and shared aims Okay, well we have to leave it there. Michael Peel thank you very much for your time. Thank you Paul